0: Boom, there it is ladies and gentlemen. Uh, You know, going to a job every single day, nine to five can be kind of time consuming. You gotta figure out a way to make some passive income and that is what today's topic is all about. So if you're ready to learn about making some passive income, this one's for you, here we go. Shut up and sit down. Look, a business can give you everything you want in life. Prestige, wealth, freedom. It can also take everything away from you. This show is for those who are willing to take that risk. These are the real-life stories of entrepreneurs. But before we start, I have one small favor to ask. Please leave a comment. It could be advice, critiques, tips, feedback, or share this with someone because your engagement is the most valuable and most powerful form of social currency. So thank you, and welcome to another episode of... Business Boss. All right, if you have extra cash just sitting in an account somewhere, you're literally losing money. You put that money to work, Now, and there are many asset classes that you can choose from. But if it's passive investing that you're looking for, then today's episode is for you. There are a ton of things to consider when investing in real estate, like research, evaluation, inspections, ROIs, and more. So investing can always feel a little overwhelming. But today's guest is going to take on all that work so that passive investing can be just that passive. So let's find out more as we talk real estate investing with Mr. Spencer. Hula Go! All right, I told you we were going to have some fun, Spencer. Welcome to the program.
1: Oh, man, Hernan, that has to be, I'm sure you've heard this before, but the best, most hyped intro of any show that I've ever seen or heard or bet on.
0: <laughs> so thank thanks, you man. That's what it's about. We, we told you it's all about having some fun content, talking about what it is you do. Speaking of what it is that you do, real estate investing. In my class, we're literally about to talk about mortgages, uh, debt to income ratios, all these different types of topics. So it's perfect that you're here talking to us about real estate. Tell me a little bit about your background. How'd you get into this space? Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you,
1: i never in my life thought I would wake up every day and say, I'm a full-time real estate investor. I grew up playing in a bunch of bands, punk and metal bands, hence all the, the tattoos that people don't typically see underneath the collared shirts. Um, my dad was actually a broker uh, in real estate for 30 years. So he, uh, I grew up out here in the Bay Area, California, um, born and raised in Redwood City. I live in Alameda, which is just on the other side of the Bay Area, if you don't know the Bay Area, California well. And I worked for his business as a teenager, even younger than that. You know, he was making me do, you know, preparing houses for sale or rental uh, at a young age. Um, And at the time, I I really didn't like that. Um, (laughs) I thought it was more fun to hang out with my friends, of course. And in Silicon Valley, where I grew up and I'm living now, it's not exactly cool to tell your friends that you work for your dad's real estate company. The, The cool thing to work on is working in tech companies. So that's ultimately where most of my career took me. I joined uh, FinTech or finance tech companies. I was there for 13 years across five companies. Uh, I was never wanted to be a manager necessarily, never wanted to get into leadership, but that's basically what happened. I mean, I, I found myself kind of stumbling into a company and then got the right mentor uh, and ultimately met a couple others along the way, worked incredibly hard and got up to the point where I was about about 20, 25, 26, leading teams of 200 plus people and at the time I thought that was, you know, I was pretty cool. You know, I thought I had really accomplished it. And in hindsight, I was so far over my skis, you know, like, at the, like I took some big learnings from that period of time because it was tough and it was not, it was a rough period of time. Um, the one other thing I was going to share briefly here and before I pass it back to you for a moment is that now what we do at Madison investing and I, I'm committed to is helping folks kind of get the light bulb moment that I wish I had gotten way earlier. You know, I was working hard 80 to 100 hours a week in tech companies for 13 years. You know, I have two young kids. I want to be a more present dad like I am now, but it took me too long to get that memo. And my family went through a tough thing. We called uh, the dark decade in our family where lost a younger brother to cancer. You know, parents got divorced, a bunch of other stuff happened. And, and unfortunately, we ended up having to make some tough, big downsizing decisions along that journey. Now. I want to instill those same principles into the way that we manage the wealth and build wealth for our family and help other people do it too you know there's just different ways to think about it and for maxing out my 401ks at my old employer was not necessarily the ticket to financial freedom or passive investing it was a ticket for me getting locked into a career that i wasn't super excited about anymore for decades um, and not seeing my my young kids for uh, very often for weeks at a time so that was a diatribe but wanted to give you some color behind it
0: no and, and i kind of want to hover on that because you grew up in silicon valley right uh silicon valley for all intents and purposes is the birthplace of social media and a lot of tech companies that are that are there right i mean you, you have google there you have a lot of different companies that are i mean global companies that are, are that reside in silicon valley and and so i'd imagine growing up there was a pretty affluent community uh and you have certain expectations you talked about how it'd be cool to work in tech it's not cool to work in real estate but oftentimes you have a lot of successful entrepreneurs that turn to real estate once they've made some of that money to park some of that money in in those types of investments um and i'm curious when you are when you were along the lines of thinking i'm gonna go into the tech business Uh, Did you still have that mentality of we're going to create the next Uber, we're going to create the next Facebook, and that's really why I'm getting into this space to kind of go from zero to hero in like two months time? Or were you kind of understanding that this is more of a long-term play?
1: You nailed it. You completely nailed it. I mean, to add to that, I thought I would follow this kind of like, I call it like the unwritten Silicon Valley wealth strategy, right? And it's kind of like a lottery like the silicon valley lottery and you want to join the next big company it's going to have a massive ipo and everyone's going to pop champagne and suddenly it's going to absolve all those financial sins along the way and just to kind of go you know full disclosure here for myself i'll say this is coming from the position of i joined my first tech company as a full-time employee when i was going in thinking okay i'm going to build up some capital i'm going to make good income and i i took a bet on Jumping into a sales role that first year and a half, I made way more than I thought I would. And I thought I was pretty cool. So I decided to take some time off and do a gap year. I thought that gap year that other people had around the world and some people have now in the U.S., which is cool. That was something that wasn't a big deal for me to take. I not only spent all the money I had, I went into $30,000 in credit card debt. And, And then I had to build back up from there the hard way all the way back from a customer support rep to then leading the team of 200 people five years later. So it's all that stuff I bring up because the glamor that you're alluding to here, Hernan, about like, hey, if I go join the next big company, if it's Uber, Lyft, Facebook, Airbnb, big IPO, we all like the sound of that. But unfortunately the reality is, is that the people who work in these companies, the employees, they might go in, the only people who are really gonna get equity Like the holdings, the shareholdings that are going to have a big dollar amount tied to them at exit are the ones who are there and they're so early. They're like a founder or they're one of the early leaders and they have a big chunk of that equity. Most people aren't going, even if they are there for the exit, it's not life changing money. And so it doesn't set someone up for most people. If they even get at that company to where it's going to somehow get them the, the, the ultimate get out of jail free card and set them up for life. And so, I think that was very much a strategy that uh, explicitly or even subconsciously we were running with for quite some time. And, and Jennifer, who's my wife and my co founder at CLO at our company, she had her own career too. You know, you have to have, at least in these pricey markets like the Bay Area, you, you got to have dual income oftentimes. Even if you're making good income for one, you got to have two coming in if you want to start a family and buy a house and all these big milestone stages. And so, I just, I want to share that with people too, because you, you can think that you're winning. You can think that you're playing the game right. But ultimately I really wish that I had seen that real estate not only is cool for my definition now, it would have catapulted us. We would have like saved a decade. We would have gone so much faster buying anything. And 28, 2008, 2009, when I was sitting, renting the most expensive apartment I could find in Denver thinking that was pretty cool and I was living in Colorado, if I had bought even a single family home or house hacked, buying a, a duplex and li- you know, living in one, renting out the other, these are all things that you know my younger years, people can do and I wish I had done.
0: <laughs> you
1: can't handle the truth.
0: That's it, right? That's the reality of the life that we live in, though. We kind of we we believe one thing when we're younger, thinking we're making the right moves. And then hindsight is always twenty twenty. It's It's what we see later on down the road. But at least we get to take these life lessons and kind of pass them on. Right. And this is what you're doing with the real estate investing side, uh, teaching people, especially in today's market where interest rates are rising. The real estate market is not doing as hot as it was, you know, even six months ago. And so people are are getting in a position like I know right now you talked about having 30,000 in debt, right? There's people who've made a lot of money over the last few years. Uh, You see this in athletes all the time, professional athletes. You see this in lottery winners. That happens a lot. You don't understand what it takes to earn and to make money all you've known your entire life is how to spend. And so when you're giving a large amount of money or earn a large amount of money in your case, all you knew how to do was to spend it. Like you literally continue to move forward spending the way your habits have been put in place. And then you, you're you basically, you're, you're giving up the opportunity cost of some of these uh, investments that were there. You talk about 2008, 2000, you know, those were... I, I bought a flip property and I'm in San Diego. So our prices are right now, a condo uh, will probably run you about 450, maybe 500 grand. I bought it for 77,000 in 2000. In I want to say 2010. And, and it was that same idea. It was let's flip it. Um, but I made my own real estate mistakes as well. So when you talk to people who are getting into this space, especially with a market like today, what are you telling them, as far as being becoming a passive investor, and when real estate just doesn't sound so sexy? Yeah,
1: you know I'm always going for two objectives when it comes to connecting people in this world and in this role. And that's one of a fellow investor I'm coming in saying, "Just tell me what you're trying to accomplish. What are your goals? people tend we all tend to jump ahead of that. So number one is what are they trying to accomplish, right? Are they planning on leaving a job behind if they already have one? maybe they, God forbid, like their job. There's a lot of people who actually do. You know, I think that that's in the real estate investing community for folks that haven't kind of picked up this vibe yet. A lot of folks tend to go pretty hard and critique and they're kind of ruthless about the corporate world. Frankly, I had a much more positive experience in the corporate world than that. Um, There was brutally hard times like anything else, but I think that I had a really good experience there. So, So what's someone's goal? I mean, are they trying to go and quit and pivot and do, you know, sit on a beach full time. I mean, they're going to get bored if that's the case. I'll tell you right now. But like, I think that ultimately, maybe they want to stay in their job. Maybe they want to pivot. So what's your goal? Number two is I just try to educate them and encourage them to do the same. Because to your point exactly, Hernan, I mean, kudos to you on buying a 77k property in a market like San Diego at that moment in the market cycle. Um, Education is key. And the biggest myth out there. I think that just shoots the 99.9% of people that are out there more. uh, They've never bought real estate in their life or invested in a private deal or a fund. And they sit there reading and devouring content and thinking they're getting ready, quote unquote, for the big moment, the big correction, the big recession, whatever that might be. But they don't actually take action in the form of well, try to go do something, like, like buy a deal. That's the real learning from there. You can educate. I read 24 books in an 18-month period. That was education to me. That was over the top. People don't need to do that. Uh, what, what I would recommend doing, I could have read four, maybe six. I listened to 400-plus podcasts during that same 18 months when I first got started, just like yours right here, providing quality education to people who are trying to get started. That You still got to do that. There's no getting around that. But the real education starts when you go out and you start doing stuff. So when I'm talking to passive investors, here's the key question that I asked them first, is you can build passive income streams or you can buy them. And I'm oversimplifying this, but I think that's a really helpful decision point that people tell me they wish they had heard earlier. If you have time, but you're limited on capital, and that's mostly folks who are coming out of uh, college or high school, that was me when I was in 30K of, of debt, I had more time than I realized, and if you are, if you don't have kids, I, I promise you have more time than you probably realize. You don't want to hear that right now from some dude uh, sitting here on the show, but I'll tell you right now, you do. You have more time, you know, than you think. You can go build income streams, and that means putting in some sweat equity, putting in the hustle to do some work on deals yourself. Whether it's like a flip, whether that is a brr project, you know, buy, rehab, renovate, you know, all that stuff, or there's all kinds of strategies you could do. You could buy income streams and if you buy income streams then it's, you better believe you're going to pay for it you know so in passive deals you can go invest in a rental you can buy a rental and just hold it it's not fully passive you're still going to have to manage a manager maybe you manage that thing hands-on but it's going to pay you a rent every month but you got to learn how to do that because here's an example i bought a four hundred thirty thousand dollar duplex in vallejo california 45 minutes north of me and you probably know where that is or not but maybe some of the audience doesn't um, that cash flow, two hundred bucks a month, still does now. It's gone up in value immensely. But I would go back in time and not do that deal that way again, if at all, because that first purchase of ours, we didn't understand cash flow and cash flow goal setting and cash flow. I mean, you already know this, but for the audience's sake, that just means I'm going to go put in that we we put in a hundred thousand dollars of cash and then we took out a loan, went and bought that property. That same 100K, we could have put to use to get way more mileage in terms of how much cash flow income, mailbox money, to use the corny term, uh, that would be coming into us every month. And But we didn't understand that yet. We didn't understand what it meant to cash flow invest. So that was an example of you could buy income streams or you can build income streams, and but just don't rush into thinking Oh, I'm gonna go do a single family because that sounds like a good idea. I heard some dude on a podcast say that. Or I'm gonna go jump into doing apartments because some dude said that. It's it's even higher level than that. Like, what are you trying to accomplish? And what's the time availability and what's your motivation? You know, because you got to do it.
0: Yeah, and I think I think this is where mentorship really comes in handy, right? Because what you're describing is how to accelerate your money. That hundred grand when you put it to work. At $200 cash flow, the cash on cash return is not very good. In other words, you you, you described bur right? That strategy where you're buying something, you're renovating it, you're getting it. But the key part of that BRR is that last hour, which you're going to refinance mm-hmm. so you can pull that money back out so that your initial investment goes into a deal, but you get that money back out so you can put it to work. I've made the same mistake a lot, not even understanding that. Right, not understanding. You know, I love cash flow. Cash flow is great. A couple hundred bucks, a hundred dollars a month is amazing. That could change a lot of people's life. Shoot, that's a filling up your gas tank today type thing, right? But, yeah. uh, but it still makes a big difference. But. If you could understand how to accelerate the money, money in, and how fast can you get that money back out? And I think that's really some of those big deal investment strategies when you start talking about you – know, you you're over there in Silicon Valley. When you start looking at investors, I'm going to put money into this deal. How soon can I get my money out? When we – Shark Tank, for example, they're all thinking the same thing. I'm going to put my money in. How soon do I get my money back out? And as Mm -hmm. an investor, that exit strategy is so important. You need to understand how you're getting out of this deal before you get into the deal at the very beginning. Um, And you also brought up something else I kinda wanna dive into, which is defining passive, right? Because Ah. passive for one person is a completely different thing for another, right? Uh, When you're getting into a deal, you buy a rental, it's not necessarily 100% passive if you're self-managing. But if you're a limited partner, or you're you're putting money into a, a re or a syndication, for example, all of a sudden it's very passive, but your returns are limited. So when people work with you, how do you define passive to them, uh, and in their comfort zone, and, and how does the deal get structured that way?
1: This is a fun topic, man. I, I really appreciate you going there, and it's such a smart question because I think a lot of folks oversimplify this. And it's not that complex at a high level, but it's so important to wrap your head around because I literally just this morning to give you guys a real time, real human being example, had an hour long conversation with the dad, two kids, you know, it could be anyone. But here's this was his brief story. He bought two buildings, managed them themselves, sold them, made a very large profit. When I asked him what he would do differently, he would say, I wouldn't do that again. And he wouldn't do it again, even though he made a very large profit, because throughout that time, it was painful for him. He managed them himself, even though it was in his neighborhood, even though he could get there closely to him, lived outside of Boston, expensive market nationally. And it went well financially. Did it go well, lifestyle wise? Did it go well, stress level wise? I don't know. It didn't sound like it to me and not, not according to him. And so I would say there's three categories the way I describe it to our passive investors and the the group members who join our investing group. And that would be you have active. Semi-passive, and then fully passive. Active, some examples would be like a flip. You know, you buy a property, you're actively doing that work yourself. Another active would be, you are a syndicator. And, or if you wanna go out and you wanna buy a big apartment, could be any big property, but you're going to go do all the work of pulling together passive investors. You're the active one. You're the manager, you're called the general partner of the GP. You're gonna go find a bunch of LPs, a bunch of limited partners, passive investors, And they're the ones who are investing their capital, putting that at risk for you to go find the deal, manage that deal, add value to that deal, or in some cases build a brand new building, but that's a higher risk thing. We focus on buildings that are typically there, and that's also active. So those are two active strategies of many that you can go take on. Semi-passive, I would say any form of rental that you own outright. And that that even applies if you go and you hire a property manager. So we had uh, five... Properties, rentals in the middle of Kansas City, Missouri. We, we bought them and sold them. You know, sold them at a profit over the years. We were getting two hundred to two hundred and fifty bucks a month in cash flow for a purchase price of it. mind-blowingly affordable for you and I sitting in California. $60K, sixty k, sixty thousand dollars purchase price per. I mean, that's great from a cash flow perspective. You better believe we would get it. E- like handwritten I mean, snail, snail mail letters we would get stuff from the city from the county and this is basic stuff they would happen all the time and you're ta- you're talking you're covering the property taxes you get an upset county because one of the tenants happened to put a couch on the front yard and the neighbor didn't like that so they filed some kind of formal complaint it's the weirdest most random stuff but that's your problem to deal with if you're the owner so we you know we had to deal with that that is time is money. You know, and so that is semi-passive, in my opinion. Fully passive, which is the way that we invest now, and it's not going to be for everybody. But that's for us. Is you're basically still doing the diligence, or analyzing, making a decision, an informed decision on the front end. Like once in a blue moon, I'll get a, I'll get a note or an email or a you know phone call from someone who really wants to give me a piece of their mind because they want to tell me, Spencer, there's no such thing as fully passive because you still have to do the diligence on the deal. And I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, how literal do you want to take this example? But okay, sure.
0: Man, it's your money. You better do the diligence on the deal. Right, yeah, I mean,
1: is is a savings account passive? I mean, you're still betting the bank you're going to put it in with, right? So it's that's where I draw the line, is as soon as I wire over my 50K, my 100K, my 25K, you know, the minimums are usually baseline 25K on these fully passive. Uh, real estate syndications or funds where there's apartment buildings or, you know, uh, rentals, even self-storage facilities all over the country. There's tons of these things. You're doing diligence on the front, sending the funds. Once those funds are in, you don't control anything. You're trusting that team. You're also not doing any work. The only work you have to do is You know, I won't go too far into taxes because that might put some people to sleep, even though I think they're exciting these days compared to what I used to. Um, You have to do taxes. uh, But other than that, you don't do anything. All you do is you receive direct deposit. And when the cash flow proceeds come and hit your bank account. So that's passive to me now.
0: And that's not, that's not bad. That's a good, that's a great way to look at it. And yes, taxes can be boring, but they can save you a ton of money, especially if you live in California. Oh, um, yeah. I, I love how you talk about living life by design, right? And uh, a couple weeks ago, I had a wholesaler on the show um, and it's kind of relevant for me for today, especially because we're going to be talking about mortgages. Uh, and one of the things that I like to tell uh, my students is that the bank doesn't really care about you, the person who's buying the place. And especially when it comes to this investment property, you have a lot more skin in the game, but usually it's the property that qualifies, not as much the individual Um, when you're coming into these things. We talk about, first home you're going to buy is probably three and a half percent. Second one might be 5%. But once you get into that third property, if you're doing it as an individual, you're looking at that 20, 25% marker because the bank's just not going to loan you that full amount. They know that you don't have as much skin in the game. Um, when you're evaluating some of these investments that you're looking for, how many of them are like way below market value where the bank's like, hell yeah, this is definitely one I want to I want to jump in on. Um, and how many of them are you buying at retail or do you even buy at retail?
1: That's a really smart question. I I appreciate the focus on the mortgage stuff. I mean, I I can't go into it to that really good question without something saying right out at the gates. If folks inherently find mortgages a little dry and boring, I mean, you're there with the rest of us, but I would just say debt, this idea of debt, a mortgage is a form of debt. And I used to think like that credit card debt that I racked up when in my younger years of 30K, that's what we call bad debt. You know, that, that stuff has a big interest rate attached. So I'm bleeding those interest payments. There's also good debt. What you're talking about, and, and I'm so grateful, I mean, your audience is going to benefit greatly from this uh, and your students are on, is that good? mortgages are good debt often. If they're, if they're set up the right way, that's taking on good debt. That's why you see online in forums and posts, real estate investors that know what they're doing, they'll go out and brag how much new debt they just brought on. And that's because they know what they're doing. They know you're basically getting money, cheap. You're getting cheap money and then you're growing with leverage. And so I bring that up because when we're going into these deals, we're buying you know, apartment buildings that are typically pretty big. And that means that you're also going to get, this is such a counterintuitive thing to your point, man, is that those are bigger, the bigger you go, in a lot of ways, it actually gets easier. Uh, if you go for a really big property and so buying like a two unit duplex maybe even up to a quad um, where you've got four units that can be harder because they're underwriting you as the individual sometimes if you don't have any other assets to your name or limited assets to your name on the 100 plus unit apartment building they're going to look at that building they're going to look at the business plan behind that And a lot of times, you know, thankfully, I structure in myself into these partnerships with a very short list of folks who we've built a relationship and I, I joint venture with them. They find the deals in places like Texas and Georgia, uh, you know, in North Carolina, South Carolina, Arizona, anywhere outside of California, basically um, that has cash flow. They find these deals. Oftentimes they had to negotiate for them. So they'll be off market, you know, they're not buying retail and as a result, They've already got the banking relationship dialed in and that and that lender is going to come in and say, oh yeah, we already know how you guys operate and we're going to give you a loan. It's going to be a really good loan to value and then so on and so forth. It's really the debt right now in the year 2022 has certainly gotten a little bit more uh, dynamic. Let's just say it that way. Expensive. Uh, <laughs> a little bit more expensive, a lot more expensive, but I think what it, it's so important for folks to step back and look at timescales big picture because if you're getting into this hard assets game and you're going to be investing in real estate start thinking in decades man because this is just a moment in time it's going to feel painful for a few folks out there you know you won't be able to buy as easily and if my heart goes out to people that are trying to close on their first home for example it's a heck of a pricey moment but man oh man that is a very important concept to understand and if you can find stuff off market and it's a really big asset and it's going to continue growing in a good market, the lender's going to see that too. So they'll be happy with it.
0: And we're just scraping the surface when it comes to debt because uh once you start understanding the debt structure, you realize that oh, when I refinance a property and I take my money out, I didn't actually sell it, so I don't have any capital gains, I don't have any income uh, that's acquired there, you mean I can continue to earn money, go out and buy something else, renovate it, raise the value, refinance, and then you wonder why real estate investors, big names like Donald Trump, don't pay income tax. It's because they understand the rules of how this debt game is played, how this tax game is played, and they play by those specific rules. And I, I you know and that's the thing about you know when you talked earlier about making decisions and analyzing the deal and deciding that's a ceo mentality at the end of the day this is your money this is your decision you got to decide whether you want to go passive whether we want to go active whether you want to let your money sit in the bank or not but you have to understand the rules because you're living your life by design whether you design it and it's intentional or it's being designed by your actions. It's your life that you're living by design. Uh, well, Spencer, before we head out, man, I want to make sure if people want to reach out to you, they want to to learn more about investing with you. How can they do that?
1: Yeah. Well, thank you so much for the conversation here today, Arnon. This has been a blast and hopefully the audience got something out of it. Uh, folks can find us at madisoninvesting.com. Um, We actually just launched a new free resource that we're very proud of. We've never done one like this, and we've taken our sweet time getting it out because we think it's just so packed full of valuable stuff for folks. It's a no-obligation resource. If they go to our website, it's the Blueprint for Passive Investors, and it's like a seven-day email series, and they can learn everything about the basics, the foundational pieces of how we look at deals and how folks can get started as passive investors, too.
0: That's perfect. That's perfect because everybody wants to get started. Nobody knows where to start. So make sure you guys check that out. Uh, you guys can check out more information on Spencer at madisoninvesting.com. He mentioned it scrolling across the bottom of the screen. You can also follow him at LinkedIn at Shelly Goss, which is his last name. Uh, S-H-I-L-L-I-G-O-S-S. That's where he's most active. Uh, and then, of course, for those of you who still want to send an email, I'm sure Spencer will respond. Spencer at madisoninvesting.com. Uh, Spencer, any last, uh, last final thoughts before we head out?
1: Yeah, I would just encourage folks that regardless of where your interest lies now, be curious. Just find a way to be curious. I mean, I think that that's at the root of wherever direction you want to go in wealth building. You know, if you want to look at your net worth, start there and then be curious how people go and grow that. Find a way to be curious about the people who are further along than you are and you want to role model your behaviors after them. If I could go back and say say one thing to myself in my younger years, that would be it.
0: <laughs> find a mentor. Find a mentor. Somebody's already doing what you want to do. Uh, I, I'm agreeing with you, man. If I can go back to my 20-year-old self, all the mistakes I made. I, I had a great run, right? It's not like I didn't enjoy my 20s or my 30s. But man, I could have made it so much better with just a few tweaked choices here and there. So yeah, for sure, man. Thank you a lot, Spencer, for coming on the show. Ladies and gentlemen, give him a round of applause. There you go. All right, ladies and gents, we'll catch you guys on the next one. Peace and we're out. It's over. Go home. Is your business in need of marketing? Try starting a podcast. But not just any podcast. Podcast like a pro